Welcome to this final plenary session uh, on authorship, politics, celebrity, exploring theoretical and practical perspectives. It gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, three uh, commentators, uh, very uh, well-equipped expert commentators on um, on this, these issues. Um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will speak, and I'll introduce them in a row and then invite them to begin. So, uh, first up, uh, we have Peter D. MacDonald, Professor of English and Related Literature here at the University of Oxford. He's published widely on censorship, on the rise of mass culture and media history, and is the author of The Literature Police, Apartheid Censorship and Its Cultural Consequences, and also co-editor of a special issue of Interventions on J.M. Kutsi's often controversial novel, Disgrace. Second is Caroline Davis from Oxford Brookes University. Caroline is Senior Lecturer, lecturer in Publishing and the leader of the Masters in Book History and Publishing Culture. Her research focuses on British post-colonial publishing and in particular on literary publishing in Africa. And she's the author of Creating Postcolonial Literature, African Writers and British Publishers, and the co-editor of The Book in Africa. That came out last year. Olivier Driesens, gives me great pleasure to, to, to pronounce it that way, <laughs> is lecturer in uh, the sociology of media and culture at the Department of Sociology at Cambridge. And his research focuses on media, uh, Sociological questions of media visibility, celebrity, social change, inequality, and everyday life. That's, qu that's quite a list there. Um, so, um, it's really, really great to, to be part of this panel, and I'd like to hand over now to, to Peter to begin. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Alika. Um, so, I, th I thought I'd start off um, simply by reading a passage that I thought was apropos. Um, it's particularly, I think, uh, apropos given uh, not only the, what you've been talking about today, but also uh, Olivier's uh, uh, notion of, uh, we were talking before, not only the convertibility, but my favorite English word, the fungibility of celebrity capital. Um, and this is a passage, in a sense, about that. Uh, Harold Pinter, winner of the 2005 Nobel Prize for Literature, is too ill to travel to Stockholm for the ceremony. But in a recorded lecture, he makes what can fairly be called a savage attack on Tony Blair for his part in the war in Iraq, on, in the war in Iraq, calling for him to put on trial, be put on trial as a war criminal. When one speaks in one's own person, that is, not through one's art, to denounce some politician or other, using the rhetoric of the agora, one embarks on a contest which one is likely to lose because it takes place on ground where one's opponent is far more practiced and adept. Of course, Mr. Pinter is entitled to his point of view, it will be replied. After all, he enjoys the freedoms of a democratic society, freedoms uh, which we are um, this moment endeavoring to protect against extremists, the voice continues to say. So it takes some gumption to speak as Pinter has spoken. Who knows? Perhaps Pinter sees quite clearly that he will be slickly refuted, disparaged, even ridiculed. Despite which, he fires the first shot, 
and steels himself for the reply. What he has done may be foolhardy, but it is not cowardly. And there come, uh, and there come times when the outrage and the shame are so great that all calculation, all prudence is overwhelmed and one must act, that is to say, speak. Um, I'm sure somebody has, uh, sorry, uh, because I, I couldn't make it uh, for the, the rest of this, but I'm sure somebody has, has thrown this, this into the equation uh, today, so just uh, stop me if this is... Uh, uh, if you've heard this at some point today before, but but I, I did just because of the, I, I just whenever you have a conference like this, I just like to sort of remind myself about the key words and the history of the key word, and I I, I just looked up celebrity uh, in the OED. Has somebody spoken about this, the, the history of the word today? No. Okay. Uh, well, there's just a few things I thought might be interesting uh, quickly just to throw onto the, uh, into the discussion is that according to the OED, which of course is not you know the sacred fount of wisdom. It's a bunch of lexicographers down the road trying to make things up. Um, but uh, according to the OED, there's a really interesting, you know, they're very careful about these sorts of things, and they, they make the distinction between the celebrity as a person, the notion of the celebrity uh, as, as a category of person, and uh, the, uh, the notion of uh, the condition. There's another, another meaning which is the condition of being spoken about. Okay, so they make that distinction. The condition of being spoken about, they say that use of the word celebrity, they dated from 1600. But interestingly, I thought, I thought uh, Sandra might be interested in this. The, the, the celebrity person, they date from 1849. Uh, and it's, like, uh, um, uh, it's, it's, from a, it's from a novel, actually, uh, that they, they cite that. So 1849, the celebrity person, according to the OED, gets invented in English. Um, then... The other two things that just came up immediately with the OED search was 1977, there's a new genre called the celebrity novel, for the first time articulated, and in 1986, the celebrity novelist, uh, which is a, a different kind of figure. It's, uh, I think it's also not quite Disraeli because the, 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 night, the Chicago Tribune quotation, uh, they quote... Um, John Ehrlichman is the one example, so that's the, 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 the American politician who went down with the Watergate scandal, and Carol Baker, who's a movie star for the, the celebrity novelist. Okay. Um, I just, I, I was just uh, as I say, it's just a kind of a, a nervous tick I have whenever I'm talking about something, is just to go and look at the words again. Um, but the real thing I thought I would try to do, to come back to the passage um, I read uh, to begin with, is to ask uh, ourselves why... Why are we having this discussion um, at all? Um, uh, why is this a, a, a discussion, uh, not, not academically, but in a sense culturally? And this is not just because Sandra's organized a conference, which is really good, but, but why, why in a sense, what does it tell us about the culture that we inhabit that we are having this discussion? Why, why, is, this, why is this happening? And um, here's a, a, a thought. Um, uh, Maybe the reason why we're having this discussion is um, because the, the it's because of the strange public status of this thing called literature as a form of writing, as a form of public writing. And we, I think I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in the fact that we, as a culture, and I'm just using this uh, with blithe uh, generalizability. generalizability um, we, we, as a culture, um, are in fact deeply confused. 
um, about literature as a form of public discourse because we don't know where it belongs. What history does it belong to? And uh, I think uh, culturally, uh, if you just look at it in sort of very broad terms, I think there's more to it than this, but I, I've identified three. So the one, one place that we could say that literature belongs as, a, as a, a space of public discussion is in the, the history that it belongs to, is the history of thought. Um, so there it may be that we want to put literature alongside philosophy, and we want to think of Joyce alongside Wittgenstein, uh, and we want to think about it in those sorts of ways. Um, the other thing, of course, though, is, which I, I don't think many people think about Wittgenstein in this way, but certainly people would think about Joyce in this way, um, but uh, literature also belongs uh, to the history of entertainment. Um, so there it's not philosophy, uh, it's film. Um, and, uh, um, you know, we might say that what we want to do is now start to think about, uh, you know, the disnification of, of, uh, of Finnegan's Wake or, or, or whatever. We want to think about it in, in, those, in those sorts of terms. Another area which is probably in, in some ways the most controversial uh, for the, the whole history of it, um, in some ways, is it's, we can put it into the history of taste, that literature belongs in the history of taste. Uh, and the reason why that becomes controversial is, of course, anybody who's read uh, Pierre Bourdieu or indeed Gogol, where you might as well just read Marx, uh, if you think about the history of taste, uh, you're linked to various forms of social power. Uh, so if you're talking about taste, you're linked to power. Um, so this is where we might think, okay, well, where, where does literature belong in this way? Well, it might be that uh, we can think about it in relation to, say, the fashion industry. You know, is you, you know, do you read Versace or do you read Primark? You know, those sorts of <laughs> questions. Or you can think about it in terms of household furnishings. You know, do you read IKEA or uh, do you read Hendrden? Um, uh, 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 Hen I think is the most expensive furniture brand in the world. Okay, um, so those are the three things in which I've, I, I've been interested in literature as the confusion. We don't know where it belongs, we don't know quite where, it seems to belong everywhere, um, and, and it raises the sorts of questions that we will be talking about today. Um, of course, I think, uh, and here I'm going to make other uh, crass generalizations, which are uh, partly because I am crass, but also partly because I'm deliberately being crass. Um, uh, literary studies has been particularly confused about all of this, uh, especially in the last 40 years. Um, so that, you know, with the rise of cultural studies in particular, we haven't known whether we should, can, can talk about literature as the history of thought. Well, no, most people have really forgotten about that. It's really literature as some kind of relationship to film, television, uh, or, or, or supermarkets or whatever uh, version of cultural studies you want to go for. And that happened, of course, they're not unrelated. There was a, 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 a kind of un unhappy, it's, well, it's from my point of view, uh, unhappy conjunction of um, what Rita Felsky has uh, in quite a good uh, re recent book uh, um, uh, called The Ethos, the, the profession got taken over for about 40 years by the ethos of critique. Uh, this became a kind of the professional persona that every, any academic wanting to make a career had to adopt. So in many ways, for the last 40 years, and this is where I'm, I'm, I am making these claims, uh, literary studies, I think, has been particularly confused by identifying literature with the history of entertainment on the one hand, and uh, the history of taste, because that's where the issue of critique came in. Uh, you know, you just have to think about 
the kinds of things that, you know, a book like Eagleton's Literary Theory Book of 1983, where it's, it's really all about the issue of, of taste. Okay. The point I wanted to come back to, and my concluding point, um, is that, of course, many writers, and I would say a few people within literary studies, but actually I think it's much more interesting in terms of the last 40 years that it's been really the most powerful case has been made by philosophers for literature as belonging to the history of thought. Many writers have uh, often in the face of fierce opposition or fierce indifference struggled to try to keep what they're doing within the history of thought. And they see themselves in a battle against, you know, those forces that want to place them solidly, the publishing industry for one thing now, solidly in the history of entertainment, or you know, uh, forms of uh, the ethos of critique that says, no, this just belongs in the history of taste, and taste is inherently corrupt and corrupting. We must critique this um, and take that sort of stance. So writers and some philosophers, I think, have tried to make it the alternate case. So keep it within the history of thought. One of the writers, um, and this is where I can very quickly now try to open this up. Uh, I'm sure some of you knew what I was reading. Um, but there it is. Um, the, uh, the, we were talking about covers uh, a moment ago. The only thing I want to point out about this is uh, that the cover says uh, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature 2003. Okay. So. Uh, Coutier is not alone, but he is one of the writers who has uh, desperately uh, and, of course, failingly uh, tried to keep his work within the history of thought. And uh, the, the only question I'd leave you with now is uh, to ponder, and we can come back to, because I know my time is almost up, mm -hmm. um, is uh, the, the question I have for, for you and we can talk about is that what is the difference between, if you recall what I read, just hearing what I read, and looking at it, uh, the, the same text constructed on this page, um, where I read you a statement which I thought was appropriate for this uh, discussion because it was, Olivia's, it's very much a reflection, a meditation, a re reflection on the issue of convertibility, of, of uh, Pinter going along, giving his Nobel speech, and denouncing Blair. That's, that's, that's what he was doing. But now uh, that content, if you like, has suddenly now got positioned in a crafted way uh, onto this page in that way, in which you have a figure called JC um, writing these little short opinions. They're actually called strong opinions. Um, there's number 26, it, it just for, again, where the issue of the, the looking at it and reading it in this context as opposed to hearing what I said, uh, the one just before, in other words, 25, is JC giving you his opinion on Tony Blair, okay, which is pretty severe. Um, underneath that, you've got a, a line, so these opinions go in a numbered order across the, across the top in that way. Uh, the next line, level down, you've got a series of reflections by the JC voice outside of the opinions that he's writing for a German publisher. And this is just relevant to the discussion, so I'll just quickly read this. Uh, uh, that line underneath, you can see it goes horizontally, so you'd have to read this going this way through the whole narrative. Uh, opin uh, opiniâtre, say the French, obdurate, stony, 
Mulish. Bruno, that's the German publisher, in his German is more diplomatic. He's still wavering, because he's publishing, JC's writing these things in English, they're going to be translated into German. He's still wavering between calling these little excursions Meinungen or Einsichten. Meinungen are opinions, uh, excuse my pronunciation, he says, but opinions subject to fluctuations of mood. Okay. These are JC's reflections on, his, on, on various things, including his writing and these opinions. Underneath, at this stage in the narrative, you have a discussion going on between uh, Anya, who is the woman he hires to uh, type up his opinions, uh, and her boyfriend. And it's at this particular point, uh, I'm not going to go into this, but the boyfriend is scheming to get access to JC's bank account because he's a banker, uh, a real banker. And uh, he's uh, um, going to um, uh, swindle him of money. He's going to find a way of getting, getting, getting access to his money. Okay, anyway, um, I, will, I will just leave you with that and we can come back to it. Great, thank you very much, Peter. Um, moving on now to um, Caroline, um, for your thoughts on authorship, politics and celebrity. Thank piece. you. Um, Peter, I don't know if we can swap. I need I need yes. to leave the, the laptop. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, let me, let me uh, kill this. Sorry about that. Thank you, Sun, for organising today. Um, yeah, I, I think my, my points are maybe a little bit more specific than either a, a Peter or Olivia's. I'm going to be talking about the um, publishers' interventions in these sort of tensions between arts and politics and literature. Um, that's very much my area of research. Uh, I'm historically looking at um, post-colonial publishing of African writers. Um, <coughs> and my research is particularly focused on, so far, on Oxford University Press and Longman's, to some extent, Heinemann's African Writers Series, and some um, South African publishers of literature. So, um, and I'm, I'm sort of interested in this issue of cross-field migrations and how this occurred um, in the sort of publishing process. Um, and I think there's a sort of these value judgments associated with um, political writing and more cultural writing, which, um, which has really played out in the publishing process, which I'd like to sort of draw attention to, and I hope this links up with the broader issues. But um, uh, if you... If you Bourdieu has been mentioned a lot, but Pierre Bourdieu talks about writing at this intersection between um, the literary and the political field. If you think of the Venn diagram, the point at which it uh, intersects um, is what he calls social art. And he argues that writers um, who are operating in this, in this intersection of the field are lower in the cultural hierarchy. Um, he says that writers who demand this is his quote, who demand that literature fulfil a social or political function, occupy a, low, a lower position within the literary field. That's in the rules of art. Um, but as um, Jared Zimbler has pointed out, there's a significant problem for this vision of the African literary field um, as it excludes or devalues the work of many writers whose ends were specifically political. Um, and in the, in the case of the writers I'm looking at, writing between 1960 and 1980, African writers, uh, their writing was um, 
very predominantly political. Um, they were writing to expose corruption, racism, injustice during the period of decolonization in sub-Saharan Africa and of apartheid in South Africa. So politics was absolutely at the heart of um, their mission statement. And I think it's really interesting to see what happened to those writers when they tried to get um, some degree of in a way, international celebrity by being published by um, British publishers. And so I've been really absorbed in those um, discussions. And as Peter said, there's a lot of confusion about what literature is. And I think that that I mean, unbelievably fascinating archive at Oxford University Press where these decisions about the text are really recorded. Um, that what's going to go into the public domain, what's going to be excluded from the public domain, what, what sees the light of day, what doesn't. Um, and I find that really fascinating. It's obviously you know, a form of censorship, it's a form of gatekeeping, but then there's something more subtle that goes on as well, where the publisher intervenes in the sort of editorial, the design, the production, the marketing and the sales strategy to, um, to change the way as a writer is perceived. Um, and there's a real, there's a real um, obvious denigration bit like Bourdieu was writing, a denigration of political writing as a lesser form of art compared to more cultural writing in, um, in, in these records. So basically there was this, a text would arrive in, in Oxford, it would get sent around to the great and the good at Oxford University, that all, I mean, it's unbelievable <coughs> gatekeeping process that occurred where everyone had an opinion, and a lot of the opinions were, is this political art, or, I mean, is this political as in something that's very um, temporary, very um, uh, that's you know that's not going to stand the test of time, or is it culture? Um, and they, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, and one of the reasons is that they they thought of themselves as cultural gatekeepers. I think they also um, were aware of their market, and one of the markets was the African school system. Eighty percent of the books were going back into the African school system, and the Cambridge Examination Board were very instrumental in making those decisions. And they were looking for works by Africans which were canonical, would be, would be thought of as canonical in the future. But also, um, they um, they were thinking of their U.S. and their U.K. markets, which really didn't understand the complexities of African politics, so they wanted something that was very straightforward for those markets. Um, so there was this sort of attempt of editors to brand their authors as artists, not political activists, as timeless, universal, universal mythical, apolitical, and um, to make very, very overt links with canonical Western writers. And um, I'm just going to how much of time got? Three, 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 four minutes. I just want to show a couple of covers um, of uh, the books in the series because I think these show quite clearly what how these sort of arguments um, how these arguments have worn out. Um, I, I think a lot of these sort of I mean the, you know, the, the arguments are fought out at every stage in the publishing process, but I think that the paratext of the books is also quite an interesting area in which these tensions were borne out. And the first of these covers was um, the first book in the Three Crown series, the first, sorry, the, one of the first publications, African writing publications in the Three Crown series was Wally Schoenker's um, the, Jewel, the, well, Jewel, the Jewel in the Crown and The Dance of the Forest. They were both released at the same time. And um, 
the editor, Rex Collins, <coughs> went around uh, Nigeria in 1960 on a search, specifically, I'll use it in his terms, searching for budding Shakespeare's and Byron's. And he came across Wolishuinka, who not only had the right initials, but also fitted the bill in many ways. And um, he decided that he was, he was his man. And um, he argued for his publication in the series. Uh, and the Dance, Dance of the Forest was um, actually described by um, Shrinker as subversive, cynical, iconoclastic. It was a damning portrayal of um, the new colonial government in Nigeria and um, a satire, sort of making allusions to a, uh, an equally corrupt um, pre-colonial um, rule in, in Nigeria. But as you can see from the cover, um, there was an attempt to uh, present the book as, um, as evoking African myth and folklore. They have here some trees with um, face, faces and creatures. We don't know if they're human or, or animals intertwined in the branches and very sort of stylized, um, stereotypical, exotic African images. And the book was promoted with a flyer that made direct comparisons with Shakespeare, um, saying that the, the flyer that came with the book said, the whole action of the play is set in a mysterious forest, very like Shakespeare's Forest of the Comedies or the Heath of King Lear. So nothing very overtly political about the paratext of the book. And the second, um, oh, yeah, so that's the flyer. Um, the second book I just mentioned very briefly is um, Athel Fugard's, um, um, John Carney and Winston Schoner's um, plays, Statements, which were published in 1974, absolutely the, the most political of Fugard's um, plays. And they were written... And they're created and written with, with the co-authors, um, with Fugard working alongside John Carney and Winston and Shona in improvisational theatre workshops. And they absolutely directly attacked apartheid legislation and enforcement. Um, but OUP really struggled with that kind of collective model of authorship. And initially, there was a proposal that only Fugard's name would appear on the front cover. Um, and then Carney and, and Shona got, they got their agent involved and he objected to this. They said they needed accreditation. So they were eventually put onto the cover, but as you can see, in much smaller font size. And um, the, um, this is the back cover blurb in which um, the, um, the reader is assured that the most, these most overtly political of Fugard's plays um, in, the, in these plays there's no mention of the theory, theory of apartheid um, and uh, he was a, there's an allusion to Blake <coughs> and the readers are sure that the politics of the play are tempered by literary abstraction and um, they're, they're promoted as um, representations of Africa and the African experience so in a very broad terms uh, presumably to maximise the market for the books so I'm, I'm sort of just to conclude, I think there's this real tension between local, politically engaged, post-colonial writing and the international publisher. Uh, and this is very, my research is very specific. I think I'm, I'm not sure this is you know, a universal statement. But this seemed to be played out on many levels and it also manifested in the paratext of the books. 
Um, and I think that the process of international publication for these writers involves a subtle but complex repositioning of the author from political protest, protester to universal, timeless artist, and their work was refashioned, repackaged, and sanitised <coughs> by the British publisher. And this, by these strategies, the publisher played a decisive role in neutralising the political impact of the literature and in successfully incorporating these writers into the international literary establishment. So, I mean, yeah, it's rather specific, my work, but um, I'm hoping that will contribute to the broader discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks Erica. very much, Carla. Um, Thank you. And uh, <coughs> thirdly, then, uh, uh, Olivia Dresens. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sandra, for the invitation. Um, I feel a bit like an alien today because I have no background whatsoever in literary celebrity or literature, uh, nor in uh, history, but um, as an outsider, I have heard really many uh, very fascinating uh, papers and um, studies on literary celebrities. So from this outsider perspective, I would like to offer some brief reflections on what I've heard today. So I didn't really prepare pre previously like a whole um, presentation like the other speakers today, but just some um, reflections maybe that we can take into the discussion later. Um, but the disadvantage of coming as last person is that many interesting things have also been said and actually many points that I wanted to make have I'm just sorry. been mentioned. So, <laughs> um, so maybe I can, I can uh, add a little, bit, a little bit to this. Um, so a first point, um, or the main point that I would like to make is that perhaps in most of the presentations today there has been very atomistic or, or very individualistic accounts looking at the author as a single individual. So you already pointed at the relevance of the publisher as gatekeepers, other uh, people as gatekeepers in this process in establishing the relationship between the author, the writer, and uh, the political field. So I think that's a very important uh, point to make. And maybe to expand on this, we can start from Howard Becker's work on art worlds. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with this. So he's a cultural sociologist who whose main point in this book was that we should shift our focus from looking at the writer as a single individual, as the genius, as has been mentioned a few times today, to the person as embedded in a wider network of agents. Um, and this network goes very far or is very broad. Um, so he includes, for example, if you think about literature, um, the publisher, the agents, um, personal assistants, manager, illustrators, um, but also up to those people who provide and manufacture the technical means which enable the writer to produce their writing. So it can be a typing machine or, or the, today the computer or the iPad, whatever. So it's a, all elements are included in um, this account. So and the, the reason why this is relevant, I think, is that around these authors, within these networks, um, he finds what he calls art worlds. So these are perhaps a bit similar to Bourdieu's fields, um, areas where different um, agents connect to each other. And, and in Bourdieu's view, uh, view, there's stress on competition. For Becker, the stress is on uh, cooperation. So it's, in fact, it would be interesting to combine both because Becker ignores or overlooks the role of competition a bit. Um, so, and then, 
Um, how this becomes relevant for the topic of today is that within these art worlds, there are specific norms and um, values, different conventions. So then we can think about um, offers as a part of particular genres, where perhaps it's not really, um, it's not really done to um, make explicit political meanings, or in other genres, in other circles of offers, it is really appreciated and, and gives you more prestige or, or a higher status position when you engage with politics or when you even become um, a politician. And then, um, next point um, as relevant here is that also um, we can think about these art worlds in relation to ideology. So, generally, cultural industries or cultural spheres. Um, also, literature are usually seen as more progressive, more left-wing. So, so here it might be difficult to, for authors who are more right-wing or have more conservative ideals uh, or ideologies to express themselves. Maybe also that's something that uh, can be looked at um, a bit more. Um, and a relevant notion here um, to explain or to theorize these pressures, these ideological pressures, um, is what Knight has called um, the promotional public sphere. So, um, Adam, it was, I think. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned this public sphere and the, the um, lively discussions that are going on, but here uh, Knight points more or less to the opposite, where there are strong commercial pressures, um, pressures on offers to apply or to accommodate to these commercial promotional logics. And why, you know, how this comes in here is that related to ideology that it is very difficult for dissenting voices to speak out. So I think in most papers today, most literary celebrities that have been studied are very close to um, the ruling powers, let's say, to the government. Um, Hemingway was um, reporting on, so-called reporting on, on the war as a propagandist. Um, what else do we have? Um, yeah, maybe you could see as animal rights, also quite safe topic. Um, Disraeli being prime minister himself, so he couldn't be any closer. Um, then, yeah, this she also, so it, it's all quite safe, let's say, political engagement. They're not really controversial or, or not that controversial. Um, so, and then here um, he explains that this hegemony of um, promotional culture tends to accentuate the, the credibility um, of voices rather than the validity of their arguments. So again, this is stress on uh, persona, the performance of uh, persons on and looking at the role of authenticity and legitimacy um, rather than ideological um, discussions or um, discussions based on rational arguments. It's because more emotional. Um, and then maybe a last point that I can add before we open up for a discussion is um, the role of, let's say, wider um, historical transformations and uh, political changes. And this also relates to a point made uh, by Caroline, um, this role of, for example, post-colonial um, transformations, um, the rise of African-American post-colonial uh, non-Western authors such as Pablo Neruda, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I do know these authors, um, um, <laughs> and, 
and similar offers who were suddenly catapulted to uh, international prominence. Um, so we, what you can see is that these new nations um, had uh, literary figures who invested in um, buttressing this political independence with cultural identity and prestige. And then also we can look at the role of institutions such as um, UNESCO and other institutions of cultural diplomacy, um, who in turn then provided patronage and publicity for these offers. So I think it's also important to take this more institutional dimension into the discussion on looking at the relationship between um, literary celebrity and politics. Um, we can go more into detail on specific risks, as was also mentioned in the abstract, if you want, but maybe you can leave it here and then uh, see what questions you have. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much to all three.